Hello, and welcome back to the Center for Medical Education's podcast. Today's lecture is from our emergency medicine and acute care course. Join us live in early March at our fabulous Phoenix or Vail locations. Registration is open at ccme.org or call us at 610-454-9660. Here's Dr. Chris Carpenter's lecture, Unusual but Important Cardiac Syndromes. Enjoy. So I, I do appreciate you all getting up early this morning. Uh, the, the topics we're going to be talking about today, I, I'll admit the first time I read through them, my topics at least, I, I kind of had a, a, a sense that this isn't very germane to what we do every day. Um, but I think that there are um, some, some very key nuggets of information that we can take home and to work with us. And uh, the, the first topic we're going to talk about today, the first two topics, my first of the morning and last of the morning, are these weird cardiac syndromes. And uh, things like Brugada syndrome, um, which many of us probably see the EKG patterns all the time but are never certain whether the patient actually is ever going to have manifestations of that. Um, WPW, we probably think about quite a bit when these young SVT patients come in. Uh, and, and then some um, oldies but goodies like Prince Metal's angina and uh, something new called Cunis syndrome, which I had never heard of until about three months ago when I heard Billy Mallon talking about it. And the way that I started to think about this as I was reading through these materials was that um, our job is to catch the common life-threatening conditions, but also to recognize when those zebras run by us and, and, and there's something unusual going on. And um, Brian Zink wrote a book a few years ago about the history of emergency medicine called Anyone, Anyplace, Anytime. And basically that we are the, the safety net of medicine and society, that patients are going to present to us certainly with common things, but also with uncommon things. And, and our job is not to um, get into those cognitive biases that Jim Ducharme talked about and, and fall into the trap of every time that we see an elevated troponin, it must be an acute coronary syndrome because there's other things that can cause that. And th there are some weird phenomena that can happen, like Takasubos that we're going to talk about in just a minute, that's pretty, probably pretty important for us to recognize. Um, and, and certainly it, it's going to help us with our patients, and it's going to help in the, in the courtroom as well if we ever, unfortunately, have to deal with that. So that's where I'd, I'd kind of look at these topics today about these unusual cardiac syndromes. Most of us will encounter them, whether we recognize them or not, at some point in our, our days working clinically. And the important thing is to recognize awareness that they exist and then to have a little bit of background about where to turn to learn more about them if you need that. So let's talk about this first one. Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy. I've never seen a case. At least I've never recognized a case. Um, I know a couple of my work uh, colleagues have had parents that actually had this, one, one of whom died from it. Um, so it does exist, but I've just never recognized a case. It's got, it goes by different names. It's also called stress cardiomyopathy or broken heart syndrome or apical ballooning syndrome. The word Takotsubo is obviously Japanese, and it's a, a smushed vase that they use to catch... Uh, um, octopus in, and if, it basically looks like a vase, but you smush it down, and that's what the heart looks like on a ventriculogram. If you squirt dye into the heart, it looks like this smushed vase, because the apex of the heart is not moving, and it's dilated. That's where the name comes from. It was first described in Japan in uh, around 1990. In the year 2000, there's only two publications about Takatsubos. By the year 2010, there's over 300 publications, and it continues to climb as people increasingly recognize this phenomenon. It usually begins with chest pain, 
Um, that's about 90% of cases, uh, and it's usually in women. Women are about 90% of cases as well. Um, they're typically in their mid-60s when they have the onset of symptoms. And patients are going to ask you, once you make this diagnosis, they're going to have some questions for you. Is this a heart attack? In the emergency department, you're often not going to know because it looks just like a heart attack. They, they have severe chest pain. They can have the same ST segment elevations, T-wave inversions as an MI. Um, they can have troponin elevations commonly. It looks just like an MI, and you don't know until they go to the cath lab. Um, they're going to ask you, what happened? will this happen to me again? Most of the time, not. Takotsubo is usually a one-and-done type phenomenon. It usually does not come back. Can your family be affected? As far as we know right now, there's no familial inheritance of Takotsubo's. Um, and will you have long-term sequelae? Is this going to give me heart failure? And typically not. Although they can have cardiogenic shock and sometimes require pressors, that's, that's when they die, is when it's not recognized and pressors are not started. But if you do put pressors, pressors on board, get them through that first couple of days, within a week they're usually back to normal and never have it happen again. So case, the paper number one um, is starting to dig into um, what are the characteristics of patients presenting with um, acute myocardial infarction type symptoms um, and those with obstructive coronary disease and those without, how do you distinguish them? This was 2,000 cases at the University of Chicago who had a cath, um, and they had elevated troponins, and they found that 11% of those cases had clean coronaries. So no obstructive lesion greater than 30% is how they defined it to explain why they came in with that chest pain and elevated troponin. The most common reason why the patients had those constellation of things with coronary, without coronary disease, and that 11% was Takotsubo's. That's 28% of those cases that didn't have any coronary disease. The next most common was demand ischemia. So these, those AFEB patients who come in going along at 150 um, a minute and for a prolonged period of time, that, that elevated the troponin. The next most common was pericarditis and then vasospasm and uh, coronary artery dissection. These authors found no difference in mortality between obstructive and non-obstructive causes. For Takotsubo's, that's pretty unusual. This has a pretty benign diagnosis if recognized and treated pretty quickly. Um, so paper number two gets into this idea of um, you got a troponin elevation. My thought is always this is a heart attack and acute coronary syndrome until proven otherwise. These authors are saying stop a minute and think about this because there's other things that can cause that. Um, and this gets into, again, some of Jim Ducharme's lessons about um, cognitive biases. Who's here, who, who here has heard of anchoring bias? You heard that term before? So anchoring bias is where you start with an established diagnosis. The patient's got chest pain. The nurse has already told me their trope is three. This is acute coronary syndrome. And then you stop thinking. And you stop thinking, well, what, what else can cause an elevated troponin in chest pain? Could this be Takotsubo's? Is this a 60-year-old woman who's coming in with se severe chest pain and no coronary risk factors? Um, are there other things that could be going on that can cause an elevated trope, um, like congestive heart failure, pulmonary embolism, aortic dissection, prolonged tachycardia, sepsis and shock? About 80% of patients in the ICUs who are having uh, an episode of septic shock are going to have an elevated trope, and the intensivists don't really know what to make of that. It's not MI. It's not occlusive coronary disease. It's an elevated trope. Um, ARDS can elevate the trope, perimyocarditis, endocarditis, Takotsubo's that we're talking about, radiofrequency ablation, um, chemotherapy, sympathomimetic drug abuse like cocaine can cause a trope ele elevation, strenuous exercise, um, over 60% of marathon runners after they finish their 26 miles, if you test a trope on them, they're going to have a bump in their trope. It's not going to be 
50, but they're going to have 1.2, 1.3 trope. So there's lots of things that can cause an elevated trope, and we need to stop and think about it. Um, there's other forms of cognitive bias as well. Um, there's things like um, premature closer, where we just get a couple labs back and then stop thinking and get the patient disposition because we've already anchored to a diagnosis and, and it's time to move on to the next patient. Um, there's cognitive biases that extend beyond the testing, like triage queuing, where the patient, the same patient with the same symptoms gets put into our ops uh, evaluation unit instead of into the critical care area and by the triage nurse. And we tend to think that's a less sick patient just because of where they're physically located in the department. Um, there's, here, we're here in Vegas, so there's this thing called gambler's fallacy, um, where you, um, the last three chest pain patients you've seen have all had elevated tropes. So the fourth one you see, you say, I, I cannot possibly see four in a row that chest pain patients with elevated tropes. But there's nothing statistical about medicine where you, you, that can't happen. Um, so keeping those things in mind in this paper, number two, I think is, is a, a useful lesson for us. I also learned from reading this paper that there are five types of myocardial infarction, which these cardiologists point out. I don't know if it's very germane to us, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Type one is the one we think about, where you've got that atherosclerotis plaque that um, ruptures and includes the vessel, and that's, that's typical ST elevation MI that we think about. Type two is the demand ischemia, the patient who's coming in with a rapid tachycardia for whatever reason for a prolonged period, and they have a bump in their trope. Type three is kind of vague. That's sudden death, and they define that as a patient who has likely cardiac death, but they do the autopsy and they don't find a occluding lesion, but the blood work shows an elevated trope. Type four is split into two types. Type 4A is they do percutaneous intervention. We all know that the patient comes in next day from the cath lab, they're gonna have a bump in their trope just because of the uh, manipulation of the myocardium. And type 4B is stent thrombosis. So they put, do PCI, they put a stent in, that stent occludes, that's type 4B myocardial infarction. And then type 5 is cabbage. And open up the chest, they do the bypass of the vessels. That can cause a trope elevation as well. I've seen patients two weeks out from a, a cardiac cath who still have an elevated trope in the 5 to 10 range. So you've probably all seen that as well. Um, so paper number three is a um, kind of funny paper for, for me. It's the cardiologists lamenting about these high-sensitivity troponins, which they've been using in Europe and Canada uh, and Australia for about a decade now. Um, but our cardiologists in America, and I agree with our cardiologists, by the way, they, they think this is going to be a major thorn in their side. These high-sensitivity troponins are going to pick up all those other things that can cause a trope elevation quite exquisitely, um, and they're going to pick up quite a bit of, um, of acute coronary syndrome patients that probably aren't going to benefit from a lot of what we can offer them. The specificity is going to be low. In general, when you get really high sensitivities, it's at the cost of specificity. And when you think about our jobs as emergency physicians, we want to not miss any emergencies. Worst case scenario, um, life-threatening illness, we want to not miss any of those cases. So we're focused on sensitivity. Cardiologist who's taking the calls at 3 in the morning to evaluate the patient or to consider a cath is worried about specificity. They want to get called in only for those cases where there's an occlusive disease that they put a stent in and it makes a difference. They don't want to get called in at 3 in the morning for an elevated trope that ends up being clean coronaries and from something else that, that is not amenable to what they can offer at 3 in the morning. So there's a tension there between the cardiologists who are focusing on specificity and us who are working on, on sensitivity. And since the high sensitivity tropes are really high sensitive and low specific, lower specificity, not good news for the cardiologist. These cardiologists, um, I think, put a pretty interesting idea forward that maybe 
in the future, we're going to have troponins, these high sensitivity troponins that are stratified by age, by gender, and perhaps even by ethnicity or race. That an elevated trope in uh, a level of a trope in an 80 year old African American female might have a different interpretation than the same trope in a 40 year old Caucasian male, um, based upon evidence and what we know about the, the distribution of troponins in those populations. Exactly, what we're doing with the D dimers now. Is it, are people using that, the age-adjusted D-dimer? The problem with it that we have in my institution is all the literature has used a different D-dimer assay than we use. And so it's hard to, I, I still use it. I, I'll be honest with you, I still use it. But it's, it's, it, it's, it's not evidence-based in my practice until we have that same literature on, on the D-dimer assay we use. But that's the problem with it. There's some, there's some um, the authors of those papers have put together some trans conversion formulas. So you can translate from one to the other, but... It, it's a guess, right, until the, until the research is out there. But it certainly cuts down on those unnecessary CT scans and VQ scans for elderly patients. Um, so uh, the other thing these authors are, are argue is that, you know, these emergency doctors really got to have more of a Bayesian logic. Do you guys know what that is? Thinking as a Bayesian? So Bayes, um, Thomas Bayes was a reverend, uh, 17th century, I believe, and he, he was a philosopher and a, a, a Reverend, and um, he he came up with this concept that there's a pretest probability of something happening, and then you do something, you, you test something, and then there's a post-test probability, and and it's really what we do every day when we do a history on a patient, when we do a physical exam on a patient, when we order a lab test, we're starting with this conception that this is the differential diagnosis possibilities, 10% chance it's ACS, 50% chance it's a PE, 30% chance it's anxiety. And then we get the test back, and the troponin is 5. And then there's some T-wave inversions. And we say, oh, well, that changes my probability of ACS. It's no longer 50%. I now think it's 80% probability. Uh, and there's mathematical ways to do that. Uh, but, but these authors are saying every time these emergency doctors order a test, they should be thinking this way, including the troponins. Because if a patient walks into your door um, and has no chance, this is ACS, don't order the troponin. Because even if it's an elevated troponin, this is not going to be amenable to me taking them to the cath lab. So uh, th I think that's an interesting argument. Um, the other, uh, yeah, th th so that's that. Um, paper number four. This is uh, looking at um, what are the characteristics of Takasubo's syndrome. Um, and and um, the symptoms resemble AMI, like I said. Usually within minutes to hours, they have this onset of chest pain. And 85% of the time, it's linked to some uh, emotional stressor um, or uh, something that would precipitate a sympathomimetic surge. So what I mean by that is it has followed cocaine and amphetamine um, abuse as well. Somebody uses co cocaine, and then they get Takotsubos within hours to minutes later. But the symptoms are temporally related to that, within minutes to hours. Um, it's also been seen in a couple of cases of pheochromocytoma, so as a sympathomimetic surge. Again, most of these patients recover within a week. Um, a few of them are going to require pressors during that short period of time when they have cardiogenic shock. And some of them are going to require some short-term anticoagulation use. Because if you look at the echo, the apex of the heart is going to be ballooned and hardly moving at all. And thrombus can form in the heart there. So sometimes you need to start anticoagulation on those patients. I would do that in conjunction with your echocardiography team and your cardiologist to see if that's a, a good idea. Um, Question, paper number five asked the question, can the apical ballooning that you see uh, on uh, ventriculography when they're in the cath lab, can you see that on an echo? 
Um, and again, Echo is going to show this hypokinetic um, apex of the heart and the lateral walls of the heart. And then the base of the heart is going to be hyperkinetic as the, the functional part of the heart tries to continue the blood flow through the heart. This paper is based upon just 12 cases. Um, and uh, those cases had showed that the patients had chest pain more often than they had shortness of breath. And more often they had on the EKG ST elevations than T wave inversions um, as the EKG changes. Um, the, the, the echo can be indicative of, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the left ventricular gram can be indicative of um, Takasubos. But I'm reading this paper, I'm kind of uncertain what our role in the emergency department is with this information. Are we to mention to the cardiologist on the way to the cath lab? Because we still have to go to the cath lab to prove that this ST elevation is not occlusive coronary disease that they need to put a stent in. Are we going to mention to them that, hey, what do you think about Takasubos? Do you think you should squirt a left ventricular gram? Um, on the way to the cath lab. I don't really know that that's our role, but I guess having that in the back of our mind as we're thinking about the typical patient, female, sudden onset, stressor preceded it, um, then it might be worth mentioning to the, the cardiology team on the way up to the cath lab if they're not thinking about it. At my institution, doing the left ventriculogram is not standard. They don't do it all the time because they don't want to give them that dilood. So it, it would, if they're not thinking about it and don't look for it, those findings can be transient, and, and the patient may leave the hospital never knowing that that was an episode of um, Takotsubos if they don't do that squirt of left ventricular gram. Um, so do you, uh, the next question is, do you need to do left ventriculography to diagnose it? Um, again, it's not standard in most labs. Um, it, probably the role is to just to mention it on the way to the cath lab so that the cardiologist has it in the back of their mind and don't suffer the same anchoring bias that we do that it's occlusive coronary disease, and then you squirt the coronaries, they're clean. I don't know what it is, but it's not occlusive coronary disease. Um, can you diagnose it without the cardiac cath? This, in paper number seven from the University of Virginia, they looked at 12 consecutive cases that came in, um, and they noted that the EKG changes, uh, the ST elevations, were identical to coronary disease, the ones that had occlusive coronary disease that they put a stent in. The troponin was elevated equally in both groups. It was 1.8 in the coronary disease group, and there's 1.1 in the Takotsubos group. They noted females, much more common. Like we said, 89% of the cases of Takotsubos were female versus 44% of the coronary disease. Um, they, they also note some non-significant trends in the history. Um, things like um, nausea was present three times more commonly when it was coronary disease, not Takotsubos. Diaphoresis was present twice as often when it was coronary disease, not Takotsubos. So nausea, diaphoresis, lean towards coronary disease. So any questions about Takotsubos? Has anybody ever diagnosed a case? One, two, couple? Okay, I, I haven't. What, what, what did the patients look like? Like they're described here? Female? Female? And some emotional stressor preceded it? Death of, death of husband. Did you think of it immediately, or did the cardiologist think of it? No, uh, my attending and I discussed this. I wonder if this could be. Okay. Your case was similar. Who else had a case? Did either of you, did either case require pressors? Did yours? Any pressors, any shock, uh, cardiogenic shock? Oh. Okay. Okay. 
So we're going to move on now. Um, there's a couple more interesting syndromes in this module. Um, this Kunis syndrome. Has anybody heard of this? I, Billy Mallon brought it up on MRAP about three months ago now, and I had never heard of it when he brought it up. So Kunis syndrome is actually a, a, allergic reaction mediated coronary occlusion, um, basically anaphylaxis of the coronary vessels. And um, it, it is well described. There are multiple cases, and we're going to go through. There's lots of allergens that can, or allergic reactions that can precipitate this. Um, and these patients typically get a hemodynamic double whammy. They get uh, the, the peripheral vasodilation of an allergic reaction to whatever it is that precipitated it, and cardiogenic shock on top of that. So typical cardiogenic shock, your peripheral vascular system tries to clamp down so you can continue to perfuse vital organs. In this case, So he didn't even have a known re allergic reaction. He, this is his first presentation. That's, that's tough. Yep, that, which is the right thing to do. Yeah, I, yeah. so the, the, it, this, is a this is a tough nut to crack, but something that I think that's why we come to these courses to think about things like this. Um, the, the, there's three types, actually, of the Kunis syndrome. One is just strictly allergic-mediated um, vasospasm of the coronary vessels from the allergic reaction. That's type 1. Type 2 is they've got existing coronary disease that hasn't become symptomatic yet. That When they vasospasm from the allergic reaction, that, that becomes symptomatic and may require a stent when you do the cath and find it. And then type 3 is that there's um, coronary thrombosis that ensues from the spasm. So the, the patient spasm, spasm, and the allergic reaction alleviates, but then you get thrombosis in the vessel and the same sort of occlusion. Type 1 and type 2 require antihistamines and steroids in addition to all the typical ACS management that we do with nitrates and aspirin and uh, anticoagulants, but you need to add the antihistamine and steroids too to type 1 and type 2 because it's an allergic mediated as well. Uh, so paper number 9. Um, what sort of things can precipitate Kunis syndrome? There's um, food allergies can precipitate it for sure. Um, there's actually a long list of things that can cause this. Um, Dr. Kunis in his case report says um, every medication class, every every antibiotic, um, every type of cardiovascular medicine can precipitate this, as well as foods, angioedema, exercise, serum sickness. Um, <laughs> Drug-eluting stents themselves, the stents that you put into the coronary vessels can cause an allergic reaction. Poison ivy, jellyfish stings, snake bites, and scorpion stings have all been um, case reports of Kunis syndrome. So we had a case, one case. Any other cases that people have ever recognized? Have, had anybody heard of this before today? Okay. You, you had? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I've seen that as well, and I, it may have been Kunis syndrome, and I just, I thought it was the hypoperfusion. Yeah. Yep, yeah, and most of the guys I've seen have been pretty big individuals and have lots of comorbidities on top of that, so I just attributed it to the transient hypotension they had and maybe the vasospasm from the epi that we gave them. Okay, so you can all go back to your shops and teach your cardiologist this new cardiac diagnosis. Um, let's move on to cardiac syndrome X, because I've got about five minutes left. Um, cardiac syndrome X is this, uh, unlike Takotsubo's, you get segment, no segmental wall motion abnormalities or, or the abnormal squashed base type of appearance, um, but you do get abnormal stress testing. You do get um, ST depression, um, and, and if you do the coronary casts on these syndrome X patients with chest pain, usually recurrent chest pain, less than 30% coronary occlusion in them. 
so they don't have obstructive coronary disease, but they do have chest pain, and they do have abnormal stress tests, so these aren't malingerers. There's something going on, and it's thought that it's in the microvascular system, that not, not the big coronaries that we can see on the coronary caths. Um, if you do an echo on these patients, left ventricular dysfunction is rare. Um, and uh, the, the incidence of this is varies between 3% and 11% in paper number 11. And that's because the definitions and the criteria used to establish Syndromax are all over the board. There's no standardization. So really, there should be some standardization of these definitions because um, in these 47 case studies that they talk about, inclusion criteria varied from nine inclusion criteria to um, 43 exclusion criteria. Uh, so really, this is not real well described in the literature, and, and, uh, but it is a phenomenon that you should recognize and think about when you get that patient with chest pain who comes in with an abnormal stress test. Um, Prince metals angina. Um, is uh, a condition where they, they have basal spasm, non-allergic mediated in this case, um, and it is responsive to nitrates. Uh, it can be associated with transient ST elevation uh, or depression, typically uh, treated with um, calcium channel blockers as first line, uh, and it is uh, associated with cigarette smoking um, is a major risk factor. The incidence of this has been declining in the recent decades, and the thought is because we have more patients on calcium channel blocker and less people smoking. Um, but it is another cause of chest pain that can cause some EKG changes. Um, paper number 12 is kind of interesting. I, I wanted to mention that one in particular because it goes back in history to 1979 and talks about the beliefs at that time about what was causing coronary disease. And there was these arguments that it wasn't occlusion. It wasn't atherosclerotic disease because that does not explain the emotional aspects of acute coronary syndrome. Um, these patients often come in quite shaken up and anxious, as any of us would when we have coronary chest pain. Um, and at that time, it was felt that um, vasospasm, Prince metals, was a major factor in the acute MIs that they were seeing in the day. So you can see how things change over time, perceptions change as we get to understand more and more of the literature and why it's important to continue researching and to know what's already out there. Um, the, the one thing I wanted to say about this is there's a great piece on MRAP these days called uh, Then and Now, where Mel Herbert um, grabs a, a segment of Rick and Jerry's talks from decades ago and then brings talks how things were perceived 20, 30 years ago, and then brings it up to, to today and what the current understanding is of those situations. And it's a great way to walk through the history of what we know about what we do every day in the emergency department based upon what Rick and Jerry laid out for us back in the 1970s. And this kind of reminded me of that. Um, I'm going to wind up because I get to talk about the same topic again uh, in, um, at the end of the morning, and I'll finish up on Prince Metals and then dive into the next topic. I'll turn it over to Jim Ducharme now. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To learn more about our educational products, please go to ccme.org. Bye for now. <laughs>